I know that it takes courage to share parts that are vulnerable about ourselves. And our, our bodies are always vulnerable. Our body stories are vulnerable. After reading and hearing these stories, I step out into the world and I look at people differently. And that is a great gift of literature and of good writing and of, I would say, personal essays. This is Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their true stories of personal daring, whether they are memoir excerpts or personal essay. I am your storytelling host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Today's episode is about organic connections and bodies and as always writing and life and also about the magic that often happens when we pick up and follow life's crumbs what I think of as those little sparks of interest that are clues into our next steps in a in a creative process I've been trying to figure out the best way to get into today's episode for you about a new anthology called Awakenings, Stories of Body and Consciousness. So in that spirit, maybe I'll start exactly at the point where I just woke up, literally, this morning, and remembered a dream that I had a foot cramp. Just remembering the dream struck a little bolt of fear in me. Oh, oh, foot cramps are awful. I hope I don't get one. I try so hard not to get them. I don't point my toes and I don't do this type of yoga pose and I don't do that type of thing. Then the next thought was, maybe I actually had a foot cramp in that dream. Did I actually have one in my sleep? Now, I wake up so easily, so the idea that I would sleep through a foot cramp is a little surprising to me, but if I did, well, now it's over. It held its grip, and it played out, and released me. And then that reminds me that I have always had foot cramps. There was the one that I had at my college chorus dress rehearsal when I was curling my toes around the edge of the riser that we were standing on. And before I knew what was happening, that vice-like sensation locked in and I started to literally cry. I couldn't stop the pain. I panicked. My toes were doing something completely of their own volition. The conductor was like, can't someone help her? There were a couple of PT students in the chorus. They came over and started examining my foot as it was happening. They were fascinated, confirming, yep, this is the muscle between her third and fourth metacarpals or tarsals or whatever the heck they are. I also remembered other cramps I have had when I have been having a massage and the person would start working on my foot and it would start to cramp up and I'd be like, don't touch my feet. And then inquiring, as the massage therapist often would, into the source of the foot story, I recalled a relay race when I was in first grade gym class. We were running backwards and I fell and landed on my foot and felt this shooting pain through my ankle and heel. And the kids kept yelling at me, get up, run, run. And we lost. And I never told anyone about it. Apparently, the gym teacher didn't notice or care enough to come over and check me out. I didn't reveal that my foot really hurt. Did I limp? I must have. I know that I felt a shooting pain through my ankle for quite some time, a week or two maybe, I don't know. Eventually, it went away. Was it my left foot, which is the foot that I always have the foot cramps on? I don't know. Is that why I always get these reminders of pain? What is my body trying to tell me? It's a question. 
And it was a question that I think about in a different way after taking a writing class with a new and dear writing friend of mine, Nina Lichtenstein. And it's also a bit of a magical story about how Nina came into my life. I had had another writing friend I had met through a few writing courses here in Maine. I will call her Nancy. Nancy and I started meeting up for lunches and walks, and we would talk about memoir and writing and our magical pine tree state we both had moved to not so long ago. Nancy is also quite a walker, and one day had met a woman who happened to be working in her front yard as Nancy passed by. They struck up a conversation. That woman, it turned out, was a writer too. She had written a memoir about her experience going through rectal cancer. A huge coincidence for me, since I had had rectal surgery after the discovery of a precancerous polyp in my rectum in 2015. I read the book immediately, and that turned into my episode with the beautiful writer Eliza Walton, where she read from her memoir, The Colors I Saw. Then, Nancy traveled halfway around the world to Tel Aviv for an extended personal trip. In Tel Aviv, Nancy somehow bumped into another woman, a writer. Her name is Nina Lichtenstein. You'll never believe it, Michelle, she told me. She lives in Maine. Not only did she live in Maine, she lived a stone's throw from where I sit here on the Midcoast. Nina returned to Maine where we promptly met up and began going for walks, too. We started talking about our writing, and then she said, oh, by the way, I have an essay that's going to be in an anthology. Maybe you'd be interested in it. And I was. And that's when I thought, let's talk with the editor of the collection, too. I have never done that before. And that is how I was introduced to Diane Gottlieb, and how we came to this conversation I have for you today. Diane, why don't you say hi first? Hi, I am so grateful to be here and excited and uh, looking forward to speaking with you both. I am also very pleased to have Nina Lichtenstein here, who is both my neighbor in Maine and a friend and a writer who told me about her appearance in this book. So Nina, it is thanks to you that we are here today. Say hello. Thank you for having me. And I'm so happy, Diane, to have this opportunity and uh, to chat with Michelle and to hear you also kind of talk about this experience. Yeah. So do, do the two of you, what, what is your background? How well have you two known each other? Diane, do you remember our origin story? Was it at Hippocamp? Yes, it was. Uh-huh. So you want to tell it? <laughs> well, the summer of 2022, we were at Hippocamp, which is a creative nonfiction conference. And the beauty of Hippocamp is that it is rather small for professional conferences. And it's held every year, uh, usually until this year when they're on hiatus. They're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it's a conference that's run by Hippocampus, the creative nonfiction magazine. And I was at the conference and Diane was there as well. And we sat close to each other, I think, for a few sessions. But when Diane really made an impression on me is that we had a live storytelling evening and I had put my name in the hat, as had Diane. And I was so fidgety and anxious. And Diane and I were kind of eyeing each other and kind of trying to bolster each other's courage to go up and speak our story when our time came. And Diane, you did it with such pizzazz and courage. And I chickened out. <laughs> it was scary. It was really scary. And you know what else I remember about that? We both were presenting seminars at the same time, so we couldn't go to each other's. And not coincidentally, my uh, seminar that I gave was on writing the body. And I think, Diane, that made it such a natural for me and excited also when I heard and learned that you were going to edit a collection of body writing stories. 
Yes, I was so thrilled when you submitted your piece, your beautiful piece, and I had remembered that you were writing a memoir on the body, or and that that you were teaching on the body, and that is your book also body related. <laughs> Remind me. May I, Michelle? Yeah, or? yeah. I I love hearing this background because <laughs> clearly there was a coming together of people and intentions and writing inspirations that clicked here in writing the body. So yeah, I I was actually curious about that because one was an anthology about the body. Nina, you've done a lot of writing your memoir that you have, which is going to be published at this point, we can say. Congratulations. It will be. Um, Yay. 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 (laughs) Um, And you do workshops on writing the body. So maybe fill us in on that part. Yeah, so my project of writing body-centered stories started when I was in my MFA program here in Maine at Stone Coast, which is a program, an MFA program run by University of Southern Maine. And it developed into my thesis and then Eventually, after some developmental edits and lots of, uh, you know how that goes, shitty drafts and then a little bit better drafts and then finally Mm. uh, submittable drafts. And so this memoir that will be published by Vine Leaves Press in the spring of 2025 is actually titled Body, My Life in Parts. Each chapter is named for a body part. And I use each body part as, if you will, a door or a way to access memory from life. And that is sort of the conceit of the structure of the memoir. And so in the years that have gone by, I completed my MFA in 2020, I have actually created workshops and taught them both hybrid and on Zoom and also in Israel and here in the States generative workshops where I guide writers and people who enjoy writing toward how to use the body as a source of extraordinary stories Mm -hmm. uh, that may not otherwise have been accessible without some of the tools that I try to teach how to tease these stories out and how to sit with our body and listen and, and inquire and collaborate with the body. Yeah. And I will say having taken one of your workshops, what a revelation to use our bodies as entry points for stories. That was really, it was sort of an aha moment when I was in that class. That, Michelle, would be like the dream come true of anyone who's teaching, right? Mm. If you can, if your uh, participants or students can leave and say, I had an aha moment or something clicked for me, that is like the most joyous thing you can hear. Oh, that's nice. So, Diane, what yeah. is your background with writing the body and actually with awakenings? Because I'm curious to hear the genesis of that for you. It's actually a really fun story. I am a prose and nonfiction editor, uh, not poetry, of a small, lovely journal called Emerge Literary Journal. Mm. And the editor-in-chief and also the founder and editor of ELJ Editions, which is the publisher of of Awakenings, um, is a dear woman named Ariana Den Blaker. And Ariana and I talk and often we talk about our bodies and Mm -hmm. often not kindly. And Mm. we say, oh my God, we've got to stop this. And oh my God, um, I'm sure we're not the only people having this conversation. And Ariana said, yes, let's put together an anthology. ELJ Editions will publish it about body stories. What do you think it should be? Mm. And I jumped at that chance because yeah. I write fiction I and I write a lot of nonfiction. Some of my nonfiction stories have been about my own experiences in my body and body shame. And I have gotten such powerful responses to those mm. pieces. Mm. I know that that body shame and and body issues and body joy are just things that everybody living in a body experiences. So 
you know, and I ran this by Ariana, let's do creative nonfiction short essays up to 1500 words. And let's just put out on social media, you know, hey, you got a body story, send it our way. And that's what we did. And we got a lot of submissions. A yeah. Lot of submissions. I can only imagine. Yeah. It was, you know, that's the genesis of the book. Yeah. And so how did it go from there? You're getting submissions. And was there a through line? Did you start culling them and putting them into piles? Like, I always love the idea of how do you decide what goes in, what you're trying to say? I mean, obviously, the theme is stories of the body somehow. But did you come to awakenings at that point? What what happened from there? So from there, um, it's interesting because I didn't really know what kinds of stories I wanted in terms of specific content. I just had no expectations. And to be honest with you, there's no way I could have known what the variety and the depth of the stories that came in. And Mm. it was really hard to choose. I'm sure. Um, There were such wonderful, wonderful pieces. And one of my criterion was the story had to move me deeply. Yeah. So there are a lot of hard stories in the collection, but there are also funny stories. So when I say move me, sometimes there were tissues involved. Um, But also, if I had a big belly laugh, I mean, that was great, too. The other criterion that I that I used was there had to be a shift, some sort of growth and learning Mm -hmm. through the essay, through the telling of the story. Yeah. Because there's a lot of trauma, you know, in body stuff. And I mean, I think bearing witness to trauma is so important. But for this collection, I wanted it to go a step further and see something learned, not neatly tied up in a bow, um, but some sort of shift or change. And those are really my two criteria. Yeah. Well, I love that. And that to me feels like you kind of have defined the reasons why I love memoir, why I love personal essay, why I love nonfiction, because First of all, the tissues are usually a part of it, you know, like I I do want something to move me. And mm-hmm. I also do want to move towards something that's some kind of recognition. And and I so appreciate hearing like not tied up in a bow because mm-hmm. that's life is rarely tied up in a bow, but there has mm-hmm. to be some kind of change. So, yeah. One more thing I wanted to add was you asked about themes and one theme that kind of runs through really all the stories is a pushing back. Like, no, you're not going to tell me what my body needs to look like, who my body needs to love, how it needs to function. And I'm over that. That is not, I'm not playing that anymore, which was so empowering. The eye being the brain part of the body, right? Is that what you mean? Like, I'm not playing that anymore. Those messages, all the toxic messages that we play ourselves, that we've internalized, but also from people outside, from society, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't fit who I am or who I want to be. Yeah. Mm. Or from our loved ones, even. Yes, absolutely. I just wanted to say that something that I loved about the way the anthology came out, and when I'm looking at, for instance, Diane is talking about the themes and what struck out, but keep in mind there are 49 contributors in this beautiful anthology, and that's a lot of different stories. Obviously, you're going to have a wide variety of body writing. What I love is that if you look at the table of contents, Diane has divided the stories into sort of topical chapters. And so it makes it feel if you're in the mood, you know, to read something in this 
category, you can flip to that, which is what I love about anthologies, right? You don't have to read it from cover to cover. You can just pick it up, you know, when you feel like it and choose something. Can I uh, tell you what the sections are? Because Yeah, I was going to do that. So perfect. Go ahead. So it starts with the chapter or section called Our Bodies Know. Then it moves on to Taking Up Space. Then we have When It Hurts. Then there's How We Show Up in the World and How the World Sees Us. Then there's Illness as Metaphor and separated from the body. And then there's the next to last one called growing older. And finally, what we do to heal. And I think this is really something for everybody. And as you enter into it and start to read, it gives you a a good idea of the different kinds of approaches to body writing. Exactly. And Diane, so then how did the I know we're going to hear you read the introduction, but maybe talk a little bit about the narrative arc that you came to for this. Okay, great. Thanks. So interesting because you mentioned piles before. So I really, really came to this with no expectations and no real plan because I had no clue. And I would walk the house with piles and then I would put them down on the table. I'd put them down on the floor. I'd move them to the porch. They came with me wherever I went. And it's funny because I didn't feel like I was making the piles. I feel like they made themselves. And Mm. I didn't come up with I mean, I came up with the literal words for each of the sections, but the sections kind of created themselves. The essays are really in conversation with themselves, with each other. And, you know, one would say, I want to sit next to that one, or Mm -hmm. I want to be in front of this one or behind that one. And it was like, a a miraculous process. Mm -hmm. And about the section, so the first one, our bodies know, they're all different body parts offering wisdom. And so I just kind of said, let's put those together and call it our bodies know. In taking up space, it's about body size. And we have people who talk about feeling large and people who talk about struggle with the other end of the scale, let's say. So separated from the body might need a little explanation. That's when people kind of leave their bodies, often through trauma, when they didn't feel connected to their bodies. So there are a bunch of essays on that topic in that section. I feel like it just kind of organized itself and form this beautiful arc. You know what I love about that, Diane? I love that uh, the word that comes to mind for me is organic, Mm -hmm. that it happens organically, which is so appropriate because the body, what is more organic than the body? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It is. And I love how you say the sections kind of formed themselves because I think that that's part of the the mysterious part of writing in a way is that we are somehow the channel for something. And if we can align ourselves with what needs to be said, which it can be another sort of body message, like what are we listening to in ourselves that needs to speak? Even the compilation of all of them can have a larger I don't want to say message, but can have its own flow of narrative through all the pieces together and how it's almost like fractals in these small pieces. They do that. And then in the larger, um, you know, mosaic sort of the same thing ends up happening again. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, Michelle, that makes total sense. And that is I think the power of a collection like this, Mm -hmm. that each piece is powerful on its own, taken together, it's it's almost like a movement. Um, Mm -hmm. And I found that we've been doing a bunch of readings 
And when you hear one story after the other, they just really support each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I'm I'm so honored and so grateful and so proud to be a part of this collection. Oh, that's so lovely. I love, love, love hearing that. And so at what point did you kind of, what was the timeline I'm just curious about from when you had all of your contributors, you know, lined it up to that, then it's kind of just the mechanics of putting a book together. But what was that phase of the production? It was fast. It was fast. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be four months we were accepting subs. Mm -hmm. And I think I made my decisions within two months. Mm -hmm. And I I just want to say a real Give Ariana and ELJ Editions a huge plug because Ariana and I decided that for each submission, even the ones that weren't chosen, I gave pretty lengthy feedback because when you get a pass on any piece you write, it it, it can feel really hard. But when it's a piece about your body, we took such care with people's words and that I am so so grateful for Hmm. that um yes that that definitely speaks volumes and that's one of the really difficult things about any compilation what what is part of this and what is not part of it and and just can i just add one more thing about that it's diane i just i think a few weeks ago a woman on twitter posted a piece that she said because of the feedback that she got her piece became much better and here Mm. it is now um which just makes my heart sing yeah Yeah. nina where you gonna yeah i wanted to say that i have been gobsmacked with impressiveness i guess it's called how actually quickly Diane and the publisher worked to get this collection out. I have never seen such a quick turnaround. And also, I have never worked so closely with or let's say where an editor is seeking such engaged and collaborative efforts from contributors to make the publishing process but more on once it's ready, you know, how to share the works with the world and how to be excited about it, how to engage us, how to Mm. introduce us as writers to each other. I mean, it is not an understatement to say that thanks to all of that organic and holistic work and compassionate work that Diane and the publisher put into this, it's like we have a a new little community in the, the community of the contributors to Awakenings. Well, that, I think, is one of the best things a writer can become part of, because I think anyone who puts pen to page or starts clicking fingers on keyboard is doing it to connect in some way. And so to have this larger connection also is very special. Yeah. And it was very important to me to organize the contributors by geographical location. I asked if we could share emails. I gave some suggestions for reaching out to bookstores, podcasts, and I just love the back and forth. People ask me questions. I think getting the word out on this book is so important because it's really an important book. And I, I feel that word is so overused, but I mean it here, from, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and it can really, really touch a lot of hearts. And I think promote some healing that we mm-hmm. all could use right now and always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that would be the perfect introduction to hear a little bit of it. So what we're going to hear today, Diane, is your introduction to the book, as I flip through my copy here. And then Nina, your piece is in the section called Taking Up Space. Yes, Nina's closes that out with a bang. That section, yes. <laughs> it definitely had to be there, exactly where it is. Yeah. All right. Well, Diane, whenever you are ready, if you'd like to read the introduction, and then Nina, you can go when she's done. Sure. Thank you. Without a doubt, the person who had the greatest impact on my relationship with myself and my body was my mother. 
when I was small and my dear, much older sister moved out of the house to get married, I dealt with my grief by eating lots and lots of chocolate and drinking enormous amounts of orange juice. While mom never came out and directly criticized my shape, I did not believe I mattered much to her until I lost the weight I'd gained and then some. I did this in seventh grade by eating only one package of frozen string beans and ketchup every night for dinner. When I'd come home from a party, the question that awaited me when I walked in the door was not, did you have fun? But were you the prettiest one there? The body, my body, became a double-edged sword. By living in my then-thin body, I risked the advances of boys and men who, because of biology or evolution or God, could not control themselves, and because of the societal and cultural norms of the time, did not have to. Alternatively, my body could be my ticket out of what I wasn't sure because one of those same boys might swoop in and rescue me. Neither of these scenarios left me much agency. The only thing in my control was what my body looked like and how much it weighed. Weight is a heavy word for so many of us. Our body's worth, our human worth, is placed on many different scales, evaluated according to our body challenges, appearance, sexuality, movement, illness. More and more of us are coming together to say enough to those judgments, to refuse to take them on as our own. More and more of us are awakening to the gifts that we are and have always been. Awakenings, Stories of Body and Consciousness, a collection of deeply moving, very personal essays, charts the journeys of 49 brave contributors who have shared their own body challenges and triumphs. As editor, I've divided the collection to what feels to me as an organic flow of sections settling into their own narrative arc. The first section, titled Our Bodies Know, is a tour around the body, a conversation with different body parts where each claims its due. Lips, teeth, hair, skin, hands, feet, butts, and of course breasts speak to us and share their wisdom. In taking up space, we read about size and weight and race and buoyancy. When it hurts, takes up pain in its many different forms. The essays in How We Show Up in the World and How the World Sees Us explore the critical intersection of who we are and how we are received. There are stories of illness as metaphor, feeling separated from the body and finding one's way back. Growing older presents different experiences of aging, of looking at the past, appreciation for the present, and hopes for what lies ahead. The final section, What We Do to Heal, is a testament to the spirit streaming through our very flesh and blood, to the strength that lives within all our different bodies, a strength that each contributor has called upon when writing and sharing their story. My mother told me her stories often when I was too young to hear them. Stories of her rubbing her skin raw to rid her body of her freckles, of living in an orphanage, of being beaten when a leg wound spilled its pus onto her bedsheet. There were other stories, many other stories too. I could not listen at the time. I wish I had. My deep wish is that you will listen to the voices in Awakenings, diverse voices that span across geographies, across race, age, gender, body experience, and any other number of ways one might choose to separate or define them. But it is the contributors' courage and their willingness to put their voices and bodies on the page that connect them more powerfully 
than any measure that might speak to their difference. Editing this anthology has been my great honor and joy. I am incredibly proud of this collection and enormously grateful to all the contributors for trusting me with their gorgeous words and for joining me in this celebration of bodies. Thank you, contributors. Thank you with all my heart and from my every cell. Thank you also to my dear husband and children, my wonderful friends. Thank you, Ariana Den Blaker, for your generosity, for believing in me, and for granting me this amazing opportunity. Thanks to Gail Brandeis for writing such a powerful forward, and to all who offered their encouragement and advanced praise. Thank you, my kind father and fearless mother, from whom I learned the beauty of imperfection. Lastly, I thank you, readers. I hope this anthology inspires and awakens. I wish you the best and all the love for your one and wonderful body. Belly. In the days and weeks after the birth of each of my three sons, I looked down on my belly and found it alien. My tummy was mushy and still big and made me wonder if I could possibly have another munchkin in there. Nobody told me about that part of the childbearing process, the postpartum lumpy bleeding, the lingering cramps, the unfamiliar shape of my body, despite the baby being out. I was lucky to be able to nurse all three boys, as this turns out to be nature's way to expedite the maternal body's return to, quote, normalcy. Except, of course, there is no return, just a new normal, which I found is one of the hardest but also most valuable lessons that applies to most things in life. As life happens, it takes its toll on a belly, not just from childbearing, as probably most middle-aged women sans enfants can attest to. We're in this never-ending morphing business together. My waistline, hips, and belly kept expanding each year, and although I've always been physically active, my weight hit an all-time high at the same time my husband Brian hit his midlife crisis. My father was recovering from lung cancer surgery in 2005, just as I turned 40 and was about to finish my PhD. The convergence of these three events felt momentous, an urgent call to action. My dad's life so imminently threatened and mine so definitely midway, combined with the completion, finally, of my doctorate after many years of postponing that last hurdle, the dissertation, due to childbearing. I had earned an adventure, damn it. Papa, I have an idea, I said on the phone. Relieved Dad had pulled through the surgery okay and didn't need chemo or radiation. How about I come to Norway with the boys for a year so we can spend some quality time together? I hoped the prospect of having us near would boost his spirits and help him heal. Really? Oh, honey, that would be something special, he said. I could hear it on his breath that he got emotional. I don't remember what came first, me mentioning to Brian I wanted to take a year in Norway or me making a promise to my dad. I do know I was not going to be dissuaded. This was one of those existential moments when you just know it's the thing you must do to live with yourself and not have regrets. Brian agreed reluctantly, ceding to my wishes because he knew how much my dad meant to me and how important it was for our boys to get to know him better. Brian and I had always said we'd go live in Norway for a while so our kids could become comfortable in my culture and language. After all, I had converted to Judaism and immigrated to the U.S. to make a life with him. But his business made it impossible for him to plan any long-term absence. He was supposed to commute to come see me and the kids in Oslo every six weeks, but he never traveled easily, and the logistics of remote work pre-COVID era made it difficult, which resulted in months going by without us being together as a family. Meanwhile, alone at home in Connecticut, 
he used his newfound free time to turn himself into a chiseled Adonis, practicing and teaching Brazilian jiu-jitsu his passion. To his evolving new look, he added a soul patch, that small patch of facial hair just below the lower lip, and wore under-armor black spandex skull caps over his shaved bald head. With his six foot four, two hundred and sixty pound frame, he made for an impressive presence and absence. About mid year, I was waiting for him with butterflies in my stomach at the Oslo airport arrivals, enjoying the sight of loved ones reuniting. I always loved when we'd meet up at the airport after separation, a new and exciting discovery, yet a grounding reunion with familiar smells and touches. But when Brian finally walked through the electric doors, I could tell something was off right away. Look at you, I said in surprise, measuring him up and down. I couldn't make myself compliment his svelte appearance in his soul-patched macho state. Something hit me in the gut as a turn-off. It was as if we were two same poles of magnets that, when put together, repel each other. Despite my visceral reaction at the airport, we had a sweet homecoming at our apartment as the boys returned from school and found their papa on the couch with a great big smile and open arms. After the kids went to bed, he ran his big strong hands over my hips and belly, a touch I typically loved. Why didn't you get rid of this excess, he asked, measuring my curves with his eyes and grip. Didn't you say that life in Norway would be super healthy and that you'd get into shape? I mumbled something about not having time to work out since single parenting and a new full-time job as a high school teacher was overwhelming. These love handles aren't exactly a turn-on, you know, he continued. A wave of defensiveness came over me and disgust for how he carried himself, a clown, I thought, fuming. I took my pillow and blanket and slept wounded on the couch that night. The next time my belly is flat as a pancake and love handles gone, we are separated and in the throes of divorce. I'm, quote, skinny and get lots of compliments, both from Brian and my surroundings, about how great I look. But of course, I feel like shit. I wake up with stomach aches in the morning and go to bed numbed from too much wine or bourbon or both. I get through the day with the help of Zoloft or Xanax. I add Ambien to the mix at night to ensure at least six hours of oblivious rest. I had become a beautifully skinny, miserable 45-year-old woman. It was during this wretched period that, for the only time in my life, I forgot to eat regular meals and lost so much weight that I fit into my size 8 wedding gown for the first time since 1988, when I was 23. I recall how awesome and how awful it felt when the zipper of the Laura Ashley brocade dress closed with ease and I decided to wear it to my synagogue's Purim Carnival, a cardboard sign around my neck reading Mail Order Bride. Wow, you look fabulous, people exclaimed. While the world around me offered enthusiasm and positive feedback about my appearance, I was never more broken. The drugs sailed me through the emotional fog with a chemically-induced glow. Ten years later, I'm watching The Crown on Netflix. My hand runs over the softness of my middle-aged belly, bloated after my partner Tony and I had just enjoyed a dinner of veggie burgers with Swiss cheese and oven-baked sweet potato fries. I sip an Allagash White straight from the bottle, while Tony pours his into a stemmed glass, letting the foaming head reach past the top of the glass just the way he likes it. I'm slumped comfortably on the couch next to him as Queen Elizabeth's coronation is about to take place with much pomp and circumstance. My belly is covered by the light cotton of my long and shapeless summer dress. I'm happy. My hips and stomach are two areas of my body over which I feel the least control. These are the body parts that have morphed into their own independent nations during the throes of menopause, as if a riotous and expansionist tyrant is at the helm. Where will it end? 
Perhaps it's time to act, but that will require the full cooperation of all parts of the body nation, especially the control tower up top, which of late has proven to be disturbingly, or is it liberatingly, laissez-faire in favor of a gluttonous enjoyment of life's consumable pleasures. What the heck is this all about, I'm tempted to ask, but I already know. Women my age often arrive at a point in our lives when we decide it's not worth the battle anymore. Let bellies be soft and bulbous, hips wide and grabbable, underarms wobbly. Life is too short to struggle where no struggle is needed. (sighs) Beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful, both of you. I I do love that ending. It makes me want, you know, to do that big sigh, like, oh, just let it be. And and the tactileness of it all. Um, you know, I loved that you included underarms wobbly. So if you'll let me indulge in my own little story about wobbly underarms reminds me of when I was a little girl. I would go next door to this lady. She was, I don't know. I always thought of her as an old lady. To me, she was sort of quintessential Nana. It took me a while to realize she wasn't actually my Nana, but I would go over there all the time and she would read me stories and she'd play games with me. And it was like a great person next door that was just always there for me. Well, when I would sit there sort of at her arm while she was reading me these stories, I would hold on to that like she had this you know very floppy flesh and underside of her arm and I loved the feeling of it it just was so soft and pliable and I would always try and just like push it up and get this lovely little tactile sense from it well she didn't like that very much and she would frown and go please don't do that and so you know she was very polite and it wasn't that big a deal but I'd always try and get my little my little squeeze in of her arm. Well, later, <laughs> not so many years ago, I was in the car and I was like noticed to itch my arm and I went, oh my God, it was it was a, a memory into my past through the body, Nina, as I think you talk about. And I remembered that because I said, oh my God, my arm feels just like my Nana Chase that I used to feel. And I was like, and I thought I can like play with my own arm as much as I want. As much as I want. I don't know. I took great delight in it and I wasn't going to be scolded. So yes, this sort of coming to the acceptance and like, this is what it is was lovely. So thank you both for those pieces. I think, you know, Michelle and uh, Diane, I think that what is important to remember and that thrills me when I talk about body writing and when I teach also is this idea that just because we write personal essays or memoir or creative nonfiction, and we often take certainly in memoir and personal essays, it's about us, right? And it can feel sometimes navel-gazing or, you know, why do I keep writing about myself? But I will say, and this is the example you gave, Michelle, that through your own body, you actually evoked a relationship with another human being that meant a lot to you. Mm. And so this is something that I think is one of the gifts that can be uncovered, meaning you know, we don't exist in a vacuum and we exist in our relationships with other human beings and because of our relationships with other human beings. Mm. And an example that I learned about in one of the workshops I ran was a woman who was writing about her ovaries and she was actually writing sort of a, an ode to her ovaries. I prompted my students to write something lauding or giving accolades or praising Mm -hmm. a body part that they may have had some complicated history with. And as she's writing this ode to her ovary and reading it and sharing it, she also evoked the ovaries of her mother who had given her life Mm -hmm. and talked about that gift and her mother's sort of 
ovary experiences. Mm -hmm. And then she tied it off at the end, talking about how she was about to become a grandmother. And she was thankful for her daughter's ovaries, who were now offering the narrator, the writer, uh, this new experience. And so we're sitting there and my jaw dropped. And I realized Mm -hmm. that through, you know, this one body part, this woman was, in fact, creating a beautiful multi-generational body story. Yeah. That is beautiful. And aren't we, I could be wrong about this, but I think I've heard somewhere that we are born with all of our eggs in our ovaries, like when you're just a baby. So all of those generations are within that. Again, it's sort of this very self-reflective metaphor of of that body part itself, even. In addition, I, I think that's a great observation you make, Nina, too, about It's not just navel gazing that we're doing when we are writing about ourselves. It is a gift we're giving to someone else. And one of the things that I found also a gift that we give that you mentioned that I feel so strongly about, Diane, was when you went back to the mention of your mother Mm -hmm. in the introduction and how she might have shared stories with you when you were too young to hear them you could not listen at the time and you wished that you had. And listening is the other half of it that is one of my ongoing life credo about (laughs) about things is that listening is one of the most important acts we can do. So I just love that you brought that up. And frankly, as an editor, that's kind of your role is like chief listener, Yeah, Mm. you know, for these types of stories, I go even further and call it bearing witness Mm. because it, it really is that when we share these deep, intimate stories about our bodies and somebody is there to hear them, to listen to them, you're really bearing witness to those experiences. And it's it really is one of the most powerful gifts you can give another person. I totally agree with you, Michelle. It's beautiful. Another thing that I had made a note about from the introduction was where you had said that your body was your ticket out of what I wasn't sure. And that's sort of the first part of maybe the memoirist or the personal essay writer's job is what am I, what am I doing here? (laughs) What is this? What is the question? I just wonder if you want to say a little more about that observation. Yeah. If you study essay and the history of essay and what it means, it's an exploration and it's about asking questions and digging deeper and not necessarily coming up with the answers, but having a different understanding, a broader understanding of, you know, the whole. So again, I I feel like certainly in Nina's beautiful belly um, Mm -hmm. essay and her beautiful belly, that Mm -hmm. is there. That is so there. The the questions and the, the exploration and the coming to like the end, we don't know, right? What, when will it end, right? That's the question. Yeah. But it's almost as if the answer is less important than the searching and the seeking and the deeper understandings you come to along the way. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, that is so true. And I, I love that about writing is that if we know where it's going, we might want to just keep asking the question, you know, we're, we're not ever sure where, where it's going to go. My question that I ask, I think pretty much everybody, it was one of the very first words out of either one of you about the courage to Mm. put your name in a hat, the courage to read, the courage to put words down on a page. So what was daring about this? Because putting this together, Diane, I think is a a daring endeavor. I don't know if you want to go first or Nina, if you want to talk about what's daring about your belly piece. 
Mm, Diane, do you want to go first? Sure. So my job in this <laughs> was daring in that, you know, it was I've never put together an anthology before, but I, I use the courage word more for the contributors. I know that when I when I had my first very personal essay published, I had an anxiety, like a full-fledged anxiety attack that night. And and I continue to be nervous when I write something very personal and see it in print or online. So I feel that and I know that it takes courage to share parts that are vulnerable about ourselves. And our, our bodies are always vulnerable. Our body stories are vulnerable. And that takes so much courage. I tip my hat and I bow to all the contributors for that. Well, and and it's very fortunate to have the editor who understands that risk that is felt when you feel like you're pouring your all onto the page there. So that's that's a huge thing. Nina? Yeah, so I think that for me, writing about the body, I actually don't feel that the daring for me is in writing about my body. It's more about what writing through the body will reveal in terms of relationships and my own Mm. actions, reactions, reactivity, or inactions in my relationships. So it's interesting because as anyone who will read parts or any of my memoir that's coming out, you know, I actually tap into every body part. You know, it's funny because my body certainly is by no stretch of the imagination. And I certainly don't strive toward it either. You know, these beauty ideals of, Mm. I mean, trust me, (laughs) but I don't. And that probably, Diane, may have something to do with that. Although my mother was, it was important to her to be fit and healthy and all that. I don't have much memories of growing up being sort of fed body shaming or commentary on my body growing up. It was more because I was so tall. I was always so tall. So she would say, straighten up, you know, Mm. uh, have better posture. You know, it was more about that. So the, the body shame part has, thank God, not been a big part of my life experience. But what fascinates me is that when I start to write a piece Uh, through the channel or by mining, you know, the memories that are sort of, I call them muscle and emotional memories, the sort of Mm -hmm. viscera memory. Yeah. It's revealed to me how my body has related to people in my relationships in my life, including myself, of course. And so that makes it so much more, what can I say? It's a channel to go into a bigger picture and a bigger understanding in exactly that essay, in the attempt to understand and in the mm-hmm. attempt to to figure out, you know, how did I become the person I am and who I am today? Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things I was going to say about your piece um, in particular, but that I found through many of the pieces throughout the anthology is the awareness and perceptions of quite often when the outsides and the insides do not match, whatever that means for each one of us, when there is all this positive response to, wow, you look fantastic. And inside you're saying, I feel like shit, (laughs) you know, it's just a disconnect, you know, the inside experience and the external experience. Mm -hmm. And it can go from being just, you, you might be too young when some of those disconnects are happening for it even to be registered as a disconnect. So therefore you sort of internalize it somehow to a point when you get to the growth of yourself where you can go, you know what, I don't, I don't care anymore you know, love handles are there to be held on to or whatever, whatever it is. So that was one very clear thing through your piece, Nina, that I especially loved and and related to, I will say. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. And I will say that when I uh, attended the readings, you know, and I heard each contributor read their own piece, and when I've been reading the anthology at home, 
how humbling and at the same time relieving it is to hear the plethora and the variety of body life experiences yeah. because you really, and this is why we read, right? This is why yeah. we read. We expand our lungs and our ability for compassion and empathy. And so after reading and hearing these stories, I step out into the world and I look at people differently. Yeah. And that is a great gift of literature and of good writing and of, I would say, personal essays. It compels us toward empathy and compassion and just a, a more generous spirit. You know, Nina, I love that. And you reminded me of another criterion I had <laughs> when picking the essays. Each one had to teach me something. Mm. Um, I had to be different, have a little bit of a different lens through which to see the body or the world from when I started to where I ended mm. reading mm. the essay. And each one was certainly taught taught me really, really special things uh, and really had me looking at people and and bodies and relationships in a very different way so i'm i'm grateful for that as well yeah i will i will add on to that the same thing in that it was literally in one of the most cliche things we can say but it was a chance to step into many other people's skins mm -hmm. and to look at the world in a way that I don't get to see. And that is another one of the greatest gifts that I go to, mm -hmm. to personal essay to memoir for. So brava, brava mm. to, to the two of you and the 48 other contributors. This is just such a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful anthology. I am so happy to be able to talk with both of you. Diane, why don't you, you, I don't know if you offer classes. I know that you do editorial services, I think, and I coaching. Do. do you want to tell me a little bit more about that and, and where people can get this book, perhaps? Sure. I do limited editorial services, and you can reach me at, um, well, my website is diannegottlieb.com, and you can click on that. I can kind of help you with vision, um, help you structure, help you with line edits. I have a lot of editing experience through this, but also on the journal. And I also was the lead editor uh, for Lunch Ticket while I was in school at Antioch. Where to buy the book? Really important. <laughs> and we'll put links in the show notes sure. for all these things. But yeah. Best place right now is directly from ELJ Editions. Yeah. yeah. I'll give you the link for that. Perfect. Thank you so much. Nina. Yes. How do we find out more about you and your workshops and such? Thanks for asking. And I just recently founded something called Main Writer Studio, which can be found online at mainwriterstudio.com. And that's a good spot to find out about the kinds of things that we do as an organization in terms of literary salon, open mic, and also retreats and uh, workshops that I offer. And oftentimes the workshops are hybrid, which means you don't need to live in Brunswick, Maine to attend. So that is one place. The other is my personal website, ninalichtenstein.com, where all the tabs, you know, share my writing, my services, and other types of things that might be interesting about the creative things that I do. Nina, that sounds so fabulous. Um, I'm definitely going to check check it out. One other thing that I do that I, I forgot to mention, but it's so important to me, I write a, a blog called Woman Pause, and it's for women over 50 and people who love them. Um, and <laughs> sometimes it's my own meandering musings and thoughts of the day, the week, the month, but 
primarily I interview women over 50 who have a story to tell, which women over women over 50 doesn't, right? But um, <laughs> many of them are writers and many of them are writers who started late. Mm-hmm. So I really, and I also do a lot of interviews for other venues and book reviews. I think it's so important for everybody in the literary community to support each other and and lift each other's voices wherever we can. And what is that called? Woman Pause. I love it. That's hilarious. Um, (laughs) Like, it's my answer to menopause, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I was like, I love it. Thank you. And you can find that on my website, too. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for for talking with me and for spending this time. Well, I just want to thank you both again and Michelle for hosting us and asking such thoughtful, fascinating questions. And Nina, I loved hearing you read again in your voice. And uh, it's been a joy. Thank you. Okay. And Michelle, I wanted to do a little shout out to you because you typically have only had one guest, you know, one writer who reads and tells the story around their writing journey. Mm-hmm. And I think that this was a first for you to have, <laughs> you know, an anthology yeah. or parts of and, and or representatives of an anthology, let's put it that way, and two people. And uh, I just am grateful that you thought, let's make a go for it and try. And, and I think uh, that it's been really a wonderful experience. So thank you for that. What a wonderful conversation and a wonderful anthology. I found this conversation to be incredibly heartening and supportive. A huge thanks to Diane Gottlieb and to Nina Lichtenstein. If you happen to be catching this episode before Wednesday, December 13th, that is the date for Nina's next literary salon. It happens every other month at 165 Park Row in Brunswick, Maine. It starts at 7 o'clock. And the first part of the salon, Nina talks with a writer. In December, it is going to be Cliff Travers. And the second part, she pulls names out of a hat for five-minute reading slots. I have been to all of them, and they are fantastic. And as you probably can tell, she is a wonderful, thoughtful host and runs a tight ship on her open mic. There are links in the show notes to get Awakenings, Stories of Body and Consciousness, and also to connect with Diane Gottlieb, Nina Lichtenstein, and the main writer's studio. If you have enjoyed this episode, I certainly encourage you to follow this podcast so you'll automatically get new episodes when they come out on the first Tuesday of each month. If there is someone you think would enjoy it, please share it with a friend. I really do not do a lot on social media. It may be ill-advised, but I really believe in the power of the word of mouth. So by all means, if you like this episode, this podcast overall, I hope you will mention it to someone who you think may also really enjoy it. I also have a newsletter, a place where I muse about the various tangents that are connected to the conversations on this podcast. It is called The Redo. You can sign up for it at my website, michellerado.com, which is the other way I care most about making organic connections with you. A big thank you to my husband for his music, Make Me Brave, the theme music for this podcast. Most of all, many thanks to you for making it all the way to the end of another episode, and as always, for daring to listen. I'll catch you next month. And nothing's gonna break my fall. There's nothing in the protocol. It's like swimming up waterfall or taking away the ground. Taking away the ground. It's like taking away the ground.